The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Hey, it's Jesse coming to you with a special bonus episode of Hello Monday. Today we're going to talk about kids, screens, and mental health. This conversation is a little outside of what we normally explore here on the show, but it's of great interest to me personally. See, like so many of you, I've been increasingly worried about kids' mental health. I'm concerned about it broadly, for sure, for all kids. And like a lot of you, I worry specifically about the kids that I know and love. My littlest friends, my nieces and nephews, my own son and daughter who are just four and two. There are so many factors that go into why young people are struggling so much right now. But most people seem to agree that the way kids use the internet plays a big role. Consider Surgeon General Vivek Murthy's proclamation last spring. We're in the middle of a youth mental health crisis in America. I've said before that this this is the defining public health challenge of our time. And I'm very concerned that social media has become an important contributor to the pain and the, the, the struggles that many of our young people are facing. Dr. Murthy went so far as to issue an advisory on social media and youth mental health. Now, you know me, I'm a techno optimist. I love technology, and and I want to be careful here. I just think we need to be careful not to put too much blame on tools when what we really need to be talking about is the way the tools look and behave, the way that we use them. We'd all do well to be smarter about that. Look, I'm no expert. When Devorah Heitner's book landed on my desk, I just knew I had to talk to her about all this. She has a doctorate in media technology and society from Northwestern University, and her latest book is called Growing Up in Public coming of age in a digital world. And I had one central question for Deborah. I wanted to know, how can we help prepare today's kids to use social media and other digital tools wisely? In our conversation today, she'll point out some pitfalls and also some really great things about social media. And she'll answer questions that I know a lot of you have. I certainly have them. Here's Deborah. A huge thing we want to help young people understand is what does it mean to have friends and connections with people versus having followers, right? And a follower has just pressed a button. I mean, I'm 48 and feel bad when I look at social media. Sometimes, you know, if I get less likes than someone else, or I don't get the kind of response to what I share. The thing is, we're wired as humans for connection, and we're wired to look for evidence of that connection. So the folks who design these apps are very, very deep into the brain science of what humans crave. And of course, teenagers are in particularly, you know, sensitive time for social affirmation and and the need for social connection. For teenagers, there's both the time and the just exquisite brain sensitivity of that moment in, you know, neurological development, where what your peers think is, is, it literally feels like life or death. Yeah. And it's, it's just so important. And so I think we need to recognize that and recognize that we can't get in the way of most teenagers caring a lot about what their peers think and that that's powerfully important and that we can do things to help shore up their sense of who they are throughout their lifespan, like before they even get on social media. So they can balance some of those likes with actually having important chores around the house. So they're getting things done, actually being part of a larger community, um, 
helping older people and younger people in the community is huge. One of the best things at my son's middle school was that there was a preschool for the teacher's children on site. And the best things I ever saw in terms of interactions at that school were like a seventh grader helping a four-year-old who felt sad on the first day, right? There's research that says that teenagers do well when they help younger people, when they help elders. And having a real sense of purpose in life can help balance out some of the emptiness that comes with noticing that you have 50 followers and your friend has 500. Because there really is no end with social media, right? Once you have 500, you want 5,000. Once you have 5,000, you'll notice someone who has 50,000. There's never going to be a point where you win. No, you cannot win social media. Uh, I agree. There are three things in what you just said that I want to tease out and explore a little bit with you. The first and probably the most important is in describing that middle school relationship in which you saw a young teenager uh, helping a four-year-old, you're describing basically modeling of how friendship works in real-life friendship, how we communicate our feelings, how we connect to each other. It strikes me that like, maybe part of teaching our children to live well in public is actually teaching them how to do this so this is the basis or the core of who they feel that they are. And the social media is like the frosting. True friendship is reciprocal. That's someone who shows up for you. You show up for them. You keep one another's confidence. You're happy to see them. And mental health research tells us that all your child needs is one friend, right? Many kids want more than one friend, and many parents imagine their kid needs lots of friends. And if, especially if you're an extroverted person raising a little introvert, you might be like, oh, my kid only has two friends. Your kid might be fine. If they're fine, if they feel fine, if they feel good about those relationships, that's okay. The kids who need our support are the kids who haven't connected with one peer. And those are kids who they might need in elementary school. Sometimes a teacher can still get away with socially steering kids, like to help connect two kids who are maybe not finding one another by pairing them on a project or sitting them together. Elementary school teachers can be magic on this. In middle school, it may be harder. It may be about joining a club in or out of school. It may be a youth group, right? It may be joining a social skills group if a kid is really struggling and, and doing something that's explicitly about how to make friends. But it's really important to understand and for kids to understand that that real reciprocal relationship is very different than that quantified number that yeah. they see on their screen. Quality is much more important than quantity. Well, this gets to the second thing that I want to explore with you, which is like right from the top, as we started to think about talking about our children's use of these tools, um, we reflected on our own use of these tools. And I think that there's a real relationship between like what we tell young people about how to use these tools and then what we do, right? What are the principles of how to think about using your own device if you're modeling it for young people in your home? Yeah, it's not perfect in my house by any stretch. With little kids, especially if they come in bed with you all, like on the weekends or at any time, if you can make the bed not a nest of chargers and texts so they don't think, oh, when I get my phone, I'm going to sleep with it, right? Like just thinking about how we can make the bedroom a cozy space that's more for sleeping and reading books and not for maybe checking our phones. And I know that's tricky where maybe we do need to have some way of being reached but just making sure that that's not always the first thing we do. At a certain point, we have to turn it off. And I think especially with so many of us working from home right now, having that boundary, whether it's leaving my computer in my office and not bringing it into the living room space, not opening my work email while I'm also watching a TV show with my family, just modeling those boundaries is huge. And modeling that it's okay not to be accessible. And especially if you're in a position of leadership, frankly, at work, and you can say to your team, 
I'm not accessible, you know, after X time. And you can have that too, right? Like it's okay. And then you, you model that by not slacking or asana-ing or texting your team all the time. Like you actually turn it (laughs) off. I am curious what you think about all of the tools that exist to help us um, set limits for young people in our homes around the time that they spend, whether it's, um, you know, our good friends just put one on the television so each of their children gets one hour and the television turns off, or whether it's, you know, choosing when to buy a phone and give it to your child. How should we think about those ideas? Well, even those two are, are I want to think about a little separately, but it's nice when the tech just turns off and becomes a brick because it takes away a locus point of conflict in the family that can be nice to remove, right? Oh, yeah. the TV is done. You know, whereas you're not there actually doing it. I think with the phone, you're really looking at less of a cliff to jump off than it, you know, by the time your four-year-old gets a phone in whatever year that will be it's going to be less of a cliff because they will probably be playing server-based games like, you know, Roblox. They'll probably be using school computers to chat. And so people think of the phone as this really big deal milestone and it, and it still is a milestone, but I just want to say kids are living connected lives long before they have a phone. They're connecting with peers online long before they have a phone. So I think it's, it's a more gradual process. And we want to think about relating to those people as if they are human beings from the beginning, like the, making sure kids understand that when I'm on Roblox chatting with my friend, that's the, that's my same person. That's my friend. And I have to be nice to them just like I would on the playground or if I went on a play date at their house. And when I'm on the group text with the whole fifth or sixth grade, that's also real people. And there might be people I'm forgetting about or not thinking about, but they are all real people with feelings. So if we can start to help our kids see that, that's a really good boundary. And then of course, thinking about sleep and taking tech away at night is huge. And honestly, for some families, I would say if that's the only battle you can fight is to make sure your kid isn't plugged in all night and they're getting their sleep, that's still a tremendous win for their physical and mental health. You know, as we're talking about this, we're talking about limits, we're talking about dangers. I, I want to also try to focus on opportunities Are there positive things here? Oh, incredibly. I think that communities of interest, especially if you have an interest that isn't shared by anyone in your immediate community, there's so many kids who felt really isolated by the things they're interested in or the things they passionately care about that find fan communities online that they connect with tremendously. I think it's very important for queer kids Uh, especially in communities where maybe there isn't an in-person community, then the online community can be amazing. I think for kids who identify as neurodiverse as well, those communities like for kids with ADHD, autism, other diagnoses, those are incredible communities. Uh, It's tricky because I think as adults, we don't want our kids to only find that affinity online, or we might be nervous about who are they connecting with, or if in the case of a kid sort of self-diagnosing, that might make us kind of nervous. But it's important to recognize that when kids self-identify, for example, like to use the term coming out, they're also coming in to a community that's a really robust community. And there may be ways of, you know, shrinking that down. Like it might be like, oh, we're in a Schitt's Creek, you know, discord online. And then within that, there's a girl talk Schitt's Creek. And we're going to talk all about girl issues and what it's like to grow up as a girl and tons of identity issues. But we're, we're shrinking that universe. Like, I'm not just talking to any girl. I'm talking to other girls who love this show that I also love. Right. 
Um, you know, you mentioned Discord. There are so many um, platforms and services that we can find like minds on, right? And actually, as the web develops, what appears to be happening is that people are splintering into even smaller communities out there on the World Wide Web. How do we make sure these communities are well-tended for young people? And by that, I mean, when I went to a, a party when I was 14 and my mom didn't know the parents of the kid, she'd call them or call somebody who knew them and uh, do a little bit of forward exploring. I can't do that for my kid. It's hard because there's like so much more that we can know in some ways. Yeah. And yet also our kids have these incredibly private lives because their friends call them and not the house, for example. So my parents at least knew the voices of all my friends. And although I tried to be sneaky and get calls late at night by intercepting them with a planned time to pick up the phone so it wouldn't wake up my parents. We, you know, I had all these strategies to manage who I was talking to, but my parents still did know my friends in a way where I moved to a new school district with my kid when he was in seventh grade. And I wanted to know the parents, but there's no school directory. And his only way of connecting with most of these kids was Discord, right? And so I'm not going to get on Discord and be like, hi, you know, warpity woo cat 596. Can I say hi to your mom sometime? Like, that's not going to happen. Like, that would be incredibly weird and violating like a thousand protocols. And my kid would never speak to me again. But at the same time, like, I did want to meet some people's parents. Um, and I think, you know, so let me come back to that question. I think it has to be more about our kids. It's more about swim readiness and swim lessons than de-sharking the pool. Like, it's more about teaching our kids and knowing your own kids' particular vulnerabilities and sensitivities, right? I think, unfortunately, the social media companies basically don't care about how our kids are doing. I'll just say it that way. Like, like you can report bullying. You can report harassment. You can report, you know, impersonation accounts. They might get back to you, you know, if you threaten them with legal action, eventually you might hear, but like no one can keep your kids safe like you can. You want to have the kid who tells you, hey, the sharks are circling or, hey, I got in over my head today. I shared a nude and I'm regretting it. Now someone's threatening to share. Like you have to be the parent that is safe to tell that to because no one else is going to help your kid. They have to be able to talk with you because there is no way for you to go in and make it perfectly safe. Like even the fifth grade group text that's literally on the school software, that's on the school learning system could become a nasty, toxic cesspool. And you have to know that your kid will come to you and say, you know what, guess what? Everybody's, you know, using racist memes on the school, the school learning management system, or people are calling out someone and talking about their body in a totally inappropriate way. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, more on social media and kids with Devorah Heitner. Stick around. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, 
and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. During my conversation with Devorah, I was struck by how much learning by doing our kids will have to manage as they make their way through the social media landscape. They'll figure out how to use these tools by using these tools and they're gonna make mistakes along the way. That's inevitable. But mistakes are a really different animal today than they were when I was growing up. I can still recall with perfect clarity a mean thing I said to a girl named Michelle Dalton in the 10th grade. It seared on my heart, and that incident only involved the two of us. Today, when a kid makes a mistake on social media, the whole world really could be watching. So I asked Devorah, in light of this, how do we help coach our kids through mistakes? How do they make amends? And can they really come back from their errors if everything lives on the internet forever? Once again, here's Devorah Heitner. I think we have to create a culture of repair and a culture where if someone really does move forward with positive intention, that we allow them back into the circle and that we may not trust them in the same way. And obviously, if a child or a teenager does something harmful, they may well not be considered or trusted in the same way moving forward. But we also don't want the 11-year-old who shares the thoughtless joke, for example, to never get a chance to recover and move forward and say, that was really dumb. I didn't even recognize all the implications of that. Or I heard adults saying it and they, they thought it was funny and I repeated it, right? So we have to look at where kids are developmentally. We have to recognize that teenagers are much more wired for expecting the rewards of an experience, like people thinking they're hilarious or outrageous than seeing some of the negative consequences or long-term implications. And so they might say something that they really regret. And we have to move forward as communities. I think a lot of times what happens is when kids share things that are extremely harmful, like a racist post or a misogynist or homophobic post, we tend to throw that one kid under the bus and make them the scapegoat for the entire community. And I think in communities where that happens, we need to both assertively, strongly come through for the targeted group, first of all. Like, okay, the perpetrator's over here, but if that kid made that racist joke, guess what? They're probably not the only kid in the community using that slur or whatever. And so we need to affirmatively, you know, support the targeted community and ask them how they're doing and what they need to see. And we need to make clear to the targeted community that we care about them and their welfare. And that often is a missing piece. We get so involved in showing how much the perpetrator's in trouble and that kid's expelled or that kid's suspended. Well, we don't know what they learned from that also. So I would try to get curious, like I quote in the book, um, Christian Picciolini, who is uh, a former white supremacist who now does anti-racist work and, and works on helping people recover and move forward from having participated in hate groups. And 
he talks about not just shaming that person, but really talking to them. Because when you shame someone and just, you know, then they they can become even more confirmed in those beliefs. So there's the problem of confirming the person and their beliefs. There's the problem of not supporting the targeted group. The third problem is it lets the whole community off the hook. Like, okay, we caught that one racist 16-year-old. Surely that's the only, you know, who knows where that kid got that weird idea, but we've caught them, we've isolated them. And then the community doesn't look at themselves and say, where did that kid get that idea? I bet there's some adults in their lives who have are been espousing those views uh, or not addressing this issue. Yeah. And I think that's really important too. And so thinking about how the education in that community needs to change. So what we never want to do when kids make mistakes is just share those mistakes in our righteous anger that those mistakes have been made and kind of actually multiply the harm as well. Because if we're sharing that video or that picture, we're actually also multiplying the harm that it causes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not good either. Right. And we are taking some, you know, 11 or 15 year old and, and, and making their face visible, potentially doing something that they may spend the rest of their life regretting. And they may already be in a place of regret. By the time we see it, they may already realize how much they've messed up. Right. So we don't need to participate in that. And we would never want someone to do that to our kids. You're talking about the responses that young people receive from others in their community. How about all the institutions we worry about beyond that? You know, is my kid going to get into college if this exists? Is my kid going to be able to be hired later on? Um, How seriously should we take those concerns? Well, I think for all of us, the workplace is a place where people might legitimately look at social media, and especially for someone like you or I who has a public life, I think we have to consider our social media kind of fair game. Like I know when I post that people are making decisions about whether they might want to work with me. I don't think colleges, well, I know that colleges are not doing the same amount of diligence on kids that, that a lot of high school counselors threaten high school kids (laughs) with. It's just not happening. Your kid is getting at best, if they haven't been eliminated by test scores or grades, five to seven minutes. That's not enough time to figure out that their discord handle is kitten five, nine, six and locate everything they've said since the fifth grade on there, that is just not going to happen. If your kid uses their social handle in their application, like say your kid has an amazing TikTok, and that's part of what they're applying with, yeah, then they might look at their TikTok. If their TikTok then links to their Instagram and they're still interested, but that's not official policy. And most admissions officers told me they rarely or never look at social. Yeah. So what I think we want to do is focus more on character with kids than the threat of consequences. We want to say is what you're sharing on this seventh grade group text or in 10th grade on Instagram in alignment with who you are and how you want to be seen. I think when we threaten Princeton and say, you know, Princeton won't take you, UC Berkeley won't take you, like we undermine our credibility because it's not accurate. Mm -hmm. And we are actually, when we say that to kids, what what they read between the lines and it's accurate is don't get caught. Right. We're not saying the Holocaust isn't funny, genocide isn't funny, we're saying those kids didn't get into Harvard, so maybe go a little more underground if you're going to joke about the Holocaust. That's not the message I want to give kids. I want to say to kids, some things aren't funny. And if your humor is really dark, maybe that's for in person, for the friends who really get you. But online, it's really easy to misunderstand and someone can think you're really diminishing some pretty terrible thing. Right. And that's just not okay. So with college, I think the message should be more like, be the person you are and and also definitely they're not going back to middle school. With jobs, I think it is fair to talk about when 
you know, you might be getting a closer look. And if you're going to have a very public job, if you're going to be a Supreme Court justice or an older person or a mayor or run a company or be a publicist, they might look at you a little more closely, but hopefully they're looking at your adult life at least, which is, I think, a little more fair. I would love to see us embrace what the UK has, the right to be forgotten. Mm -hmm. I do think that the slate should be pretty clean when you turn 18. (laughs) Not that 18 is the pinnacle of judgment, but I just think the idea that things could be out there from when you're younger than that seems really unfair developmentally. And the idea, uh, for those listeners who may not know, can you describe what the right to be forgotten is? Yeah, it's a law that gives certain rights about your history before you're 18 years old that you can get rid of uh, on the internet. And the reality is, even in the UK, I've talked to experts there on this issue. And I think there's a similar law in Europe. But the The way it works is if you really had a lot of notoriety, like say you're a young celebrity in the UK and you go on a bender when you're 16 and you publicly like trash a place and it's headline news in London, that's going to be hard to get rid of. You know what I mean? It's more like the smaller incidents that happen in so many of our communities where someone has like local notoriety. Everyone should have space to do things that are a little bit dumb And this is not free reign to be harmful. Like when I say a little bit dumb, like I don't mean the racist post or the misogynist rant or whatever. At the same time, even in those cases when it's harmful speech, I think we should let kids make restitution to the community they targeted. But I do think there has to be a time limit, especially with a child's speech. If they've moved forward and apologized and learned, that shouldn't be something that we're using to judge their character when they're, you know, 42. So my last question for you, because I feel like we've we've made a nice round, um, comes back to like early on, you said actually there's a difference between the limits we set around the television and when to give a child a phone. When do you give a child a phone? I think you're looking for those independence milestones. You're looking to see also when does your child quote unquote need a phone and what does that even mean, right? Do any of us need our phones? But when are they doing more in the community where they're going to need to call someone for a ride home? When is it getting kind of ridiculous for you to be running their social life? Like for all of elementary school, I had like, you know, Josh's dad and Levi's mom in my in my phone. But at a certain point, like my kid's going into ninth grade, like I'm not going to text somebody's dad and be like, can your kid come for a play date? Like we still text about like, who's going to go get them over at Six Flags or whatever. So I'm not saying I'm never going to, be in touch with other kids' parents. But at a certain point, your kid needs to take over that job of reaching out to other young people to make their own plans. Certainly for most kids, that's sometime before high school. And so they're going to, quote unquote, need a phone. Uh, So working your way backward from that, what about when you want to leave them home alone? That was honestly the big impetus for us was we didn't have a house phone and we were ready to leave our kid home alone and we didn't really want to leave him with one of our phones. And so he needed a phone. I think parents also may want to stretch themselves a little and accommodate a little bit of ambiguity. Uh, a lot of parents are getting their kids a watch, yeah, as well, yeah. which is a way of tracking kids. And I think the watches come with some great advantages because they're a little less exciting maybe than the phone. But the flip side is they can increase anxiety. So I take this on myself. If my kid had had a watch, I can imagine myself maybe wanting to text during the school day to check in. And I hope I wouldn't have done that. I don't know. It was not on the table for us. But teachers are telling me this is happening with elementary schoolers. And I think the pandemic and all the violence at schools have made parents really understandably incredibly anxious. But we have to recognize you're getting your kid this communication device. Don't distract them during the school day. So with that first phone, I would say when you're ready to mentor them, when you've got the time, 
when they have some independence milestones that they've reached, like can they make their own lunch? Can they get some of their homework done? Are they ready to reach out to friends on their own? And then the other thing I would say is you don't have to go from zero to 100. You don't have to get them a phone with all the bells and whistles that they have 24-7 access to. You can get them a simpler phone or or a watch. You could also get them a phone where they're only allowed to text for the first year and, and you work on learning texting together before they add any social apps. So there's a bunch of ways to make it into a more gradual experience. Uh, and I would strongly suggest that if you're going to do this, you don't set yourself up to do it at a time that you, it's a bad time for you, right? Like if you're about to go on a business trip and you co-parent with someone else, like don't do that to them. Don't be like, here, I got the kid a phone. <laughs> you know, do it at a time when you really have time and you've got, got the time to mentor, you've got the time to get on the same page with any other adults in their life. You want everyone to be on the same page. Like what are the rules? Are we taking it at night? Like, et cetera, et cetera. Who are they allowed to be in contact with on this thing? That was Devorah Heitner. Find her new book, Growing Up in Public, wherever books are sold. And I'm just going to say that I am taking so much away from this conversation. Three quick things. One, I have the power to model the digital behavior I want my kids to emulate. It's up to me to show them what it looks like when the digital devices get put away, when we use them, how we engage. I'm really trying to take that to heart. I'm trying to park my phone when I walk in the door of my home. If my wife is listening, you heard me, you heard me say it. Two, there are a lot of really great things about allowing young people to exist online in digital spaces. And community is the biggest one, particularly safe community and community that we understand. And three, I don't need to be in any kind of hurry to get my kids cell phones. Okay, I kind of know that. And yes, Jude is only four and a half. But it was super helpful to have Devorah lay out a potential on-ramp when it is time. When that day comes, we'll plan carefully, go slowly, and communicate thoughtfully every step of the way. I'm sure so many of you have thought about these issues and are thinking about these issues, and I think we should chew on them together. So I'm going to be in our Hello Monday group on LinkedIn. If you're not a member yet, you should join. It's really easy. Just search it out and ask to join, and I will invite you in. And let's share what we've learned together. What's working for you as you set boundaries, healthy boundaries with your kids? Where are the surprises? And what are the things that you think the rest of us should know? Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer encourages us all to engage thoughtfully whenever we're online. Enrique Montavo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Kube is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel, and I'm grateful to everyone for supporting a bonus episode this week. We'll be back next Monday with our regularly scheduled program. Thanks for listening.